Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. I want to talk this morning. Um, we just sang this song about living hope, right? And, and Jadab had such a beautiful thing to say about how it's our living hope like Jesus is our living hope. But it's our living hope like we're living into this hope as well. But at the same time, it's been kind of a tough few years, right? It's like a lot happening. I know that's not news to any of us, right? We've all lived through it, but I think sometimes we forget just how much has happened over the last few years. We're so in the middle of it, right? We're so kind of consumed by just trying to get through it that sometimes we need to take a step back to remember and lament what these last few years have been like. So we're going to do that right now, this morning. Now, obviously, the pandemic has been a relentless struggle. Just in the United States, we've lost over a million people to COVID-19. A million people. About 100 million people in our country have had COVID, including many of us here. Now, for some folks, this has meant like a a short quarantine or a mild discomfort, but others of us, we're still battling like long-term effects of that. I've got friends who like were, you know, long-term hikers and joggers and things like that. They, they had it year, a year ago and they, they still are struggling to kind of get some of those things back. Now, even if you haven't gotten sick or lost a loved one to COVID, I heard a sociology expert say this the other day, the pandemic has changed the day-to-day lives of more people in our country than anything since World War II. I mean, just dramatic changes in how we live and move every day. Now, the response to COVID has also been polarizing, exacerbating the deep political and ideological divides in our country even more. And I'll come back to that in a second. But something else that came out of the pandemic was a sharp rise in hate crimes toward Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. According to the group Stop AAPI Hate, there were 3,800 hate incidents between March of 2020 and February of 2021 alone against AAPI people. Another survey showed that 76% of Asian Americans reported having experienced hate crimes, harassment, and discrimination during the first year of the pandemic. Speaking of hate, just this year, there has been a significant rise in homophobia and transphobia. According to NBC News, online hate toward LGBTQ plus people rose over 400% in the last six months. 400% rise in the last six months. This is a direct result of people, including elected officials and media personalities, claiming that queer folks are are grooming children or things like that, even though statistics show that LGBTQ plus people are much more likely to be victims than perpetrators of sexual violence. Speaking of violence, racial violence has also been at the forefront these last few years, right? Right? The murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others spurred kind of a second civil rights movement of sorts during the summer of 2020. Did you know it's estimated that 26 million people participated in Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 alone? 26 million people. 
making it one of the largest movements in our country's history. In response to calls for racial justice, we've also seen a sharp rise in white Christian nationalism, a movement in which white Christian natural-born citizens are kind of held up as the ideal and everyone else is subservient. We saw this on display most vividly during the insurrection on January 6th, in which more than 2,000 people stormed the U.S. Capitol hoping to overthrow an election, stop the transfer of power, and commit violence against anyone who stood in their way, many doing so explicitly in the name of God. A D.C. Metro police officer named Daniel Hodges, who was trying to protect the Capitol from rioters that day, said this in his testimony to the January 6th committee. It was clear the terrorists perceived themselves to be Christians. I saw the Christian flag directly to my front. Another sign read, Jesus is my savior. And another said, Jesus is my king. We have a crisis happening in the American church. And we have another big election cycle coming up this November and then a huge one in 2024. And almost everyone I talk to, regardless of political affiliation, is worried about more violence, about deeper division. Speaking of violence... We continue to deal with mass shootings in our country in what seems like a weekly basis. Using the widely agreed upon definition of at least four victims shot, not including the shooter, do you know how many mass shootings we've had so far just in 2022? 481 in this year. Those shootings have wounded 1,972 people and killed 536, including 19 elementary school kids just down the road in Uvalde. These last few years have also come with significant crises in the church. The world's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, released an independent investigation this past summer, which confirmed that thousands of people endured horrific abuse at the hands of hundreds of pastors, and that the leaders of the convention knew about it the whole time, and were keeping a list of the perpetrators and covering it up. The entire denomination is now under FBI investigation. Listen, I could go on and on, but I want to bring our attention to one last issue that often gets overlooked. We are in the middle of a worldwide refugee crisis. Because of ongoing violence and famine and climate change and human rights violations, like the war in Ukraine and the Taliban returning to power in Afghanistan, the UN estimates there are about 90 million refugees in the world right now. 90 million people who've been forced to leave their homes and flee most of the time with just like the clothes on their back. Look, it's, it's no wonder we are distressed and overwhelmed and tired and hurting. I have a, 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 somebody I listen to all the time that says, maybe you're not like depressed or anxious. Maybe you're just paying attention <laughs> to everything that's happening around you. And maybe you're depressed and anxious too. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> but it's a lot, y'all. It's a lot. These last few years have been some of the hardest to endure in modern history. And it's because all the stuff I just talked about, these are not just numbers. I threw a lot of numbers at us, but these are not just numbers, right? These are people, individual people. And each of these people has a story. And each story comes with incredible pain and trauma, not just for the individual, but for the collective humanity, especially right now, because the entire world and all the information and all the bad things happening is at our fingertips constantly. 
I've spent a lot of the last three years in both professional counseling myself and providing informal counseling for others, many of you, just hanging out, talking through things. One question that comes up over and over again in these settings is, where was God? Where was God? Where was God in Uvalde, in Buffalo? Where was God on January 6th? Where was God when Russia invaded Ukraine? Where was God when George Floyd had a knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds? Where was God when millions of people were dying from COVID worldwide? Where was God? I've been asking that question, y'all, if I'm just being really honest. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is found in John 10.10. It's because Jesus gives this really beautiful, simple example for why he, as God in the flesh, came to make his home on earth with humanity. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's Jesus's why, like mission statement. That's why he came. But I read that verse during times like these. I read that verse over the last three years and I just get frustrated, right? Does anybody else feel that? Can you give me like a nod if you feel that? Just frustrated. Because the truth is, most of us are not experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus talks about in this verse. Most of the people around us that we know, that we love, people that are far away, that we're keeping up with their stories, they're not experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus offers. We are overwhelmed by the amount of suffering and brokenness in the world, and we are hurting and broken ourselves. And yet, Jesus says, I came to bring you fullness of life. And I think that's left so many of us asking, where is this full life you promised, Jesus? Where is it? Because I'm not really feeling it right now. But there is hope. There is living hope. We just sang about As Paul told the church in Corinth, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. And I read the scripture and I bring up Paul for a specific reason. If you don't know about Paul, he was a persecutor of Christians turned pastor and church planter who authored a large part of the New Testament in the form of letters to churches that he helped start kind of all over the ancient Near East at the time. Now, you probably know this, but back then, first century, it was not an easy time to be a Christian. They were dealing with rampant poverty and disease and persecution. In fact, many of them, including Paul, would end up being killed for their faith. And yet, this is incredible, catch this. In all of Paul's written prayers for his brothers and sisters in Christ in the New Testament, there is not one single appeal for their circumstances to change. All of his prayers, not one time does he pray that their circumstances would change. Instead of praying for a change in circumstance, Paul prays for God to change them. He prays that they would understand the life and hope and power that they have through Christ. The very same power, he says, that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul wants them to understand and he wants us to understand that the fullness of life Jesus promised is not dependent on our circumstances. Because let me tell you, if it was, we would be in trouble, right? It's available to us, even in the midst of brokenness. And I would actually say, especially in the midst 
of brokenness. So the question becomes how, right? How do we experience a healthy and whole life regardless of what we're walking through? Well, we're going to spend the next year trying to answer that question together. Because today we are kicking off our year of healing and wholeness. We're doing this because healing and wholeness, y'all, it's not only possible. Jesus offers them to us even at our lowest point. But we're also doing it for another reason. Now, we've been theming our annual sermon series for the last five years, and I'm sure some of you kind of wonder like how that process works, right? Now, I wish I could tell you it comes from me like going away to pray for a few hours and God just dropping an idea on me, and then I come back and I'm like, here it is. It's never happened. Maybe it does for some other people. Never happened for me. But these themes usually come out of hours and hours of conversations and prayer with our staff, our leadership team, and many of y'all. Because the goal of these sermon series is not the trans, trans, transfer of information, right? I'm not trying to be like, I've got a bunch of information and here it is. That's not the goal of me teaching or our time together at all. See, the goal is helping us collectively as a church family experience the life-changing grace and hope and love of Jesus. So as we had these conversations over the last few months about potential theme ideas, we kept hearing the same things come up. We are tired, we are overwhelmed, we are hurting, and we aren't sure what to do about it. And we aren't sure how our faith can help. Even if we haven't been hit directly with some of these things I mentioned earlier, the collective trauma of the last few years has touched all of us. Everyone could use some healing and wholeness. So over this fall and spring, we will dive deeply into how we can experience healing and wholeness, both as individuals and collectively as a church family. And listen, it all starts with understanding that God is love and that we are God's beloved. Those two identities form the foundation of the Christian faith. God is love and we are God's beloved. We pursue healing and wholeness from the love and acceptance God provides, not for the love and acceptance we hope God will provide someday. You see, because God loves us, God loves you, not some idealized version of you that might come in the future. God loves you fully as you are right now and desires to see us experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises. I can't wait to spend the coming months learning and leaning into these truths. I really believe that this year is going to be a pivotal one for our church family as we spur one another on toward healing and wholeness. And so to set the table for the rest of this year, I'm going to spend the rest of our time together this morning taking a quick look at Jesus's words in John 10, 10 that I quoted a minute ago. So before he promises the fullness of life in verse 10, Jesus talks about being a shepherd and us being his sheep. Here's what he says, John 10, starting in verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Beautiful passage. I want to point out a couple of things. So Jesus says that that he is our good shepherd, that he knows us by name and that we can hear his voice. That in a world often marred by violence and death, Jesus has actually come to bring us the opposite fullness of life. He says that his relationship with us is so intimate that the best comparison is the intimacy shared between God the Father and God the Son. That's an incredible statement. That's the depth of deep connection we have with Jesus. It's the same one that he has with the Father and the Trinity. It says he loves us deeply, that he protects us at all costs, even willing to lay his life down for us. And finally, he says that even as we are overwhelmed and hurting and broken, Jesus has come to bring healing and fullness and wholeness of life. Now, Jesus using shepherds and sheep as an analogy for our relationship with him might seem a little strange for us today. It might feel a little bit distant. So to help us understand, let me tell you about what the relationship between shepherds and sheep were like in the first century. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived in a pastoral culture. That means that the most popular vocation was shepherding. Now, sure, there were like farmers and fishermen and business folks, but most of the working people looked after and cared for flocks and animals. That was kind of the main thing. Now, keep in mind, these sheep were raised for wool, not for mutton. Did you get that? Wool, not mutton. Okay, the difference there. It's important. Because they would have a lifetime relationship with their shepherd. It wasn't a transactional thing. The shepherd was with them forever, deeply caring for them, willing to lay his own life down, not take their lives. In the Near East, where Jesus lived, towns and cities of various sizes were scattered kind of all over the region. Now, these places, they usually had walls around them, these cities and towns, to keep enemies and predatory animals out. Now, most locals would not allow the shepherds who traveled all around the region at the same time, didn't really have like a home base most of the time. They mostly wouldn't allow the shepherds to bring their flocks inside of the city gates. So what would happen is outside of most of these towns, they would build these communal sheep pens right outside the walls. So after a day of grazing, when a shepherd would stop for the night in a city, he could pay the owner of the sheep pen to watch his flock while he slept. Then the next morning, he would come out of the city gates and go onto the pen to get the sheep for another day of grazing. Now remember, these were communal pens meaning they could hold 20 or 30 different flocks at the same time. So the shepherd would walk up to the gate at the front of the pen and quite literally call the sheep by name. Now, I don't know what popular Hebrew sheep names were back in the day, but like, let's pretend that they named their flock after biblical characters, okay? So the shepherd would stand at the gate and call out, Eve, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Ruth, Mary, Joseph, so on and so forth until he'd called every name of every sheep in the herd. 
And then I, I promise I'm not making this up. This is like legit historical stuff. The sheep would hear their name, recognize the voice of the shepherd, and just come trotting over. <laughs> like incredible, right? When people would come that were thieves and they would try to call the sheep over, they wouldn't come. They knew, that's not my shepherd. I'm not going to go with that person. But this relationship between shepherds and their sheep gets even better. So sometimes shepherds would graze their sheep like really far away from cities. And that meant these large communal pens outside the walls of a city weren't available. So shepherds had to make their own with kind of waist high stone walls. I brought a picture with me. Here's what they looked like. This is still one that's still um, there in in the Near East today. So they would build them with these stone walls, right? These stones that are kind of waist high. And they're actually still used today by some Middle Eastern shepherds. They had small openings like that that served as a door, right, for the sheep to go in and out. But many times, like this one, these openings had no gates, okay? So the shepherd would lay down and sleep in the open space, putting their lives on the line by making themselves into a human gate to ensure that no predators or thieves could get to the flock. That's why Jesus in this passage says, I am the gate, For the sheep. My friends, this is the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus. He is our good shepherd, the kind who knows our name, the kind who pursues us with his goodness and love, the kind who would rather lay his own life down than see harm come to us, the kind who offers us healing and wholeness and fullness of life, no matter who we are, or what we're going through. We have to understand this foundational truth before we embark on any journey toward fullness of life. I always read a ton of books in preparation for our new year theme, and I think this one has been my favorite so far. I know you can't really see it. It's called Attached to God, and it's all about how our emotional, mental, and spiritual health come together, right, and and really directly affect one another. It's by a guy named Crispin Mayfield. Crispin is a former pastor and current licensed professional counselor. I'll go back to it a few times over the coming year, but I love the way he describes the journey that we're about to embark on as a church family. And so I just want to read it to you as we kind of come to a close this morning. Here's what Crispin says. People often come into my office with behaviors that hurt themselves and others, but I don't tell them to get out of my office until they've become better people. I am so glad to spend time with them and to help them grow and heal. They don't even need to know how to grow and change. I can help them with that. I just need them to take some steps of trust with me as we walk forward together. God approaches us in a similar way, wanting to walk through the journey of healing and growth together. However, many Christian communities have downplayed the teachings of a God who wishes to heal us and emphasized a God who only judges us, simmering with resentment and disappointment. There are many reasons to change and grow and heal and transform, but getting closer to God is not one of them. You see, healing is not something that is going to make us more likely to be loved by God. And attaining some ambiguous level of wholeness doesn't finally mean we get to experience God's acceptance. Please don't miss this. 
We pursue healing and wholeness from the love and acceptance that God provides, not for the love and acceptance we hope God will provide someday when we just get a little bit better. He loves you right now as you are, as you sit there, as you listen online or to the podcast later, wherever you find yourself, you are fully known, fully seen, and fully loved by the creator of the universe who is your good shepherd. That is where our journey begins. Like I said earlier, it all starts with understanding that God is love and that we are God's beloved. These two identities form the foundation of the Christian faith and the foundation for our journey together towards healing and wholeness and fullness of life. So next week, we are kicking off our first sermon series in this year of healing and wholeness, and it's called The Nature of God. It's all about who is this God that is love? What can we know about this God? What can we trust about this God? The theologian A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I'm I'm not sure it's the most important thing, but, but I agree with the heart behind the statement. Because if we have a distorted understanding of who God is, then we will naturally have a distorted relationship with God. And we will be unable to experience the fullness of life offered to us. Because here's the thing, y'all. We will become like what we worship. We will emulate ourselves after who we pursue. Who God is and what God is like is foundationally important, right? Because if we worship a violent and retributive God, we will become violent and retributive. You see this all the time. But if we worship a loving and gracious God, we will become loving and gracious. So we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at this nature of God, who God is and what God is like. And the truth is, so many of us need to experience healing when it comes to our understanding of who God is, because we have been given some bad messages about who God is. Some bad ones. And thankfully, we don't have to wonder or guess about who this God is. Because God has actually both described God's self to us and embodied the divine person of God in Jesus. Did you know the most vivid description God gives about God's self is found in Exodus 34? Here's what it says. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and grace. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. So these six characteristics in bold above are not only a description of God's nature, they are going to be how we break down the next six weeks of this coming series about who God is. So we're going to look at God as compassionate, God as gracious, God as loving, God as faithful, God as forgiving, and God as just. So over the next six weeks, 
That's what we're going to do. I spend a week looking at each one of those characteristics and then talking about the implications it has for our journey toward healing and wholeness. Because again, we have to understand who this God is, right? what this God is like, and then deeply understand what this God says about us, who we are, just how deeply in love he is with us. It's going to be a beautiful series and a wonderful year. I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to be finished up. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for incredible passages like John 10, where Jesus so beautifully and directly describes who he is, what he's about, and how deeply he loves and cares and fights for us. I pray that we would find rest in that place, that the fact that you are love and we are your beloved would be our foundation, not just for this coming year and these sermon series, God, but the foundation for our very lives. That when difficult times inevitably come, when we still wade through the brokenness of this world, that we would remember that you are love and we are your beloved and we can find hope and healing and wholeness in you no matter what we're going through, no matter the circumstances surrounding us. Make this true of us, God, as individuals and as a church family. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.